Let's open up our Bibles now, though, together to Romans chapter 13. We are continuing in this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us. And last week, we were looking at the end of Romans chapter 12 at how is it that Christians ought to live in a hostile culture, in a world that hates Jesus, in a a world that hates his people. And Paul's going to take that further for us today. Not not just how do we relate in an increasingly secular and hostile culture, but, but in a government in a government that sets itself up in opposition to the Lord. Uh, how, how is it that we ought to live? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. We are covering verses 1 through 7 this morning. I know. I appreciate your awe and wonder. So hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities... There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid." For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is, God, he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your people, that by your spirits working through your word, we have been brought from death to life, from blindness into sight, from bondage into freedom. Lord, by the same Spirit, working through the same Word, you transform us daily into the likeness of our Savior. We pray, Lord, to that end this morning, that by your Spirit, through your Word, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in and among us this morning. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your Word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, shortly after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Pharisees approached their enemies, the Herodians, in order to set up something of an unholy alliance in order to entrap Jesus. There, There could hardly be a more incompatible group than the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were a non religious group, a political party, they were sympathizers with Rome because it gave them elevated status and gave them great wealth. They were not particularly sympathetic to the Jewish nation. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were thoroughly and devotedly religious. They were completely anti-Rome. They hated everything about Rome and, and, and Rome's rule over them. They were anti-Caesar and they were anti-Herodian. 
But in Matthew 22, we see the Pharisees go to the Herodians and, and forge an alliance, join forces with them. And, and the two groups come up with a foolproof plan because they have a common enemy. That common enemy is Jesus. And they come up with a plan that cannot fail for how they will entrap him. And so these two groups decide to send some of the younger Pharisees, who are, I guess, less intimidating, along with some Herodians to Jesus. And first they flatter him. We read this in, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 16. They say, Teacher, we know that you, you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And then they ask him this very carefully crafted question that they've set him up for. Verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, this is a very loaded question. If Jesus answers no, then he's considered a traitor by Rome. He'd be arrested for that. He'd be brought to trial for that. But if he answers yes to that, then he's being anti-Israel. How dare you say we ought to be paying taxes to Rome? He, you're unpatriotic. Nobody's going to listen to anything you say anymore. It was really a devilish trick question. They thought they had him. In verse 18, we read this. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This was a brilliant response. In a single statement, Jesus here establishes for Christians the validity of human government on the one hand, and he sets its limits on the other hand. Caesar had his image on certain things. Certain things belonged to him. They were rightly his. They bore his image. Jesus is, is establishing here that there is a proper domain and function of human government. But on the other hand, God has stamped his image on mankind. Mankind bears the image of God. God has created us in his image with intelligence and a spirit. And so Caesar can have the things that are external, but man belongs to God. One commentator says, that the coin is the mint of the empire, but we're the mint of God. Just as the image on that coin determines its use, the image we bear determines our use. And so Jesus, in this, in this single sentence that he responds with, gives what is really the most important and influential political statement in the history of the world. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God. Now, why, why start with telling that story from the book of Matthew this morning when we're in Romans chapter 13. And well, it's because that's what Paul's got in mind as he writes here in verses 1 through 7 in Romans 13. In fact, in verse 7, he almost says that exact thing. And so as we look at this passage and make sense of what Paul's telling us about the way we relate to human governments and authorities, we need to keep the words of Jesus in mind as we do so. There's a couple of other things we need to keep in mind as well. First is the political situation in Rome that Paul's writing to is explosive. It, Tacitus, a Roman historian from this exact time, says that under the previous emperor, Claudius, 
the Jews were expelled from Rome because of, and Tacitus writes, Crestus. It's a reference to Jesus. Because of Jesus, because of the explosion of Christianity, all the Jews were thrown out of Rome. We've talked about that before as we've been in the book of Romans. This is, this is not ivory tower advice that Paul is giving out to them. Everything's perfect with us and with our government. It's a great and godly, God-honoring government. They never do anything that's opposed to Christ, and so we should obey them. That's not the context Paul's writing to you. It was incredibly relevant to them. It's incredibly relevant to us. This was not a pro-Christian government that Paul was writing to. In fact, things were worse for them than they are for us. Second, we need to realize what this passage does not tell us. It doesn't tell us what to do when the government departs from its God-ordained function. What do we do when they step outside of that? Like, by the way, our government has done many, many, many times throughout our whole history. It doesn't say what to do in the case of a revolution. It doesn't say what to do when the government's involved in an immoral act. Other passages speak to some of these things, but this one does not. It doesn't say what kind of government is best. There's not a word about democracy to be found in this passage. And so this is a very controversial text. It's one that people like to fight over. But the problems that people have in this text are not problems in the text. They're problems they bring to the text. I have these outside thoughts, and I'm going to superimpose them over God's word. Third, we need to realize that this passage is not going to relieve for us any, all of our tension when it comes to this issue. How do we relate to human governments, especially unrighteous ones, which, by the way, is every single human government that's ever existed. It, it, it is traditionally, like I said, a very controversial passage. And there are always going to be tensions for us. How do we relate to human authority? How should Christians relate to the state, especially if the state is unrighteous, as every state that's ever existed has been, certainly as ours is? Jesus is the one who established that tension, so we don't need to be afraid of it. When he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. And if anything, a serious consideration of Romans chapter 13 is going to increase our tension, not decrease it. It's not a good thing to, to, to try to live without tension on this topic anyway. If there's no tension in our minds, it means we're probably not thinking very deeply. It means we're probably parroting sound bites that we've heard from other people and have decided instead of thinking deeply ourselves and, and thinking biblically about it, we're just going to echo what we heard someone else say because we already agreed with it. So let's look at in this passage. Paul begins here with a, a basic rationale for a Christian to subject himself to the state. Look at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. What Paul gives us here is what is known as the divine right of the state. Some of you had a cold chill shoot up your spine when I said those words. He says in verse 1, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Richard Halverson is a former chaplain of the U.S. Senate before his death in 1995, and he said this, To be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state. 
Just as men, because of sin, have abused and misused every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world. And this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it's because of this very sin that there must be human government in order to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy. And the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. End quote. So, so despite the fact that almost every day our government does terrible things, and by the way, Every day our government does terrible things. We spoke of some of the terrible things that our local government did just this morning, spearheaded, by the way, by our local senator, Sue Glick. Our government does terrible things all the time. Despite that, Scripture affirms this divine right. And one of the ways it does that is by the fact that in Scripture we read time and time again that God is the one who sets up kingdoms and God is the one who knocks them down. Daniel gives this prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. And then after Nebuchadnezzar's much-deserved humiliation, Daniel says this in chapter 5 of Daniel. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So, so first, government is divinely appointed. God is the originator of government. Christians often don't take this seriously enough. The Christian ought to be the best citizen that the state has because the state is established by God. Second, th this demands a disposition on our part of profound obedience to secular government. Paul says in verse 1, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Every person, everyone, Christian, that means you, be subject to governing authorities. And Paul wants to drive the point home further. So in verse 2, he says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. We just need to sit with that because Paul really says it. Resisting governmental authority is resisting God. Now, if we do the thing we should never do with Scripture and we just lift a sentence out and set it all by itself and consider it not, not in its context, not in its setting, not in the greater statement that's being made, not, not in relation to anything else in God's Word, this could cause lots of problems for us. It gives us a massive problem because what, what it would do is, is make any disobedience to the state whatsoever always disobedience to God, and that's simply not true. It's simply not true that any disobedience to the state is disobedience to God. That, that's how we got so-called Christians in Nazi Germany who remained silent and even 
supported the Holocaust. Even justifying their support by this verse. By just taking it out of context and letting it stand on its own. It's how we get so-called Christian politicians and pro-life leaders now who, who refuse to stand against the wickedness of abortion because it's, so, it's settled law in the United States, which isn't true at all. This must never be. Our allegiance to the state has some conditions placed upon it. This is not just an unwavering allegiance. We, we must, in fact, resist the state. First of all, when the state asks us to violate a command of God, it is our our duty before God to resist the state. In Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives are ordered by Pharaoh to kill all the male Hebrew babies, and what do they do? They not only refuse to do it, they deceive Pharaoh over it. And God blessed them for that. In, in Acts chapters 4 and 5, Peter and John, in, in obedience to God, in obedience to to the Great Commission, have been preaching the gospel. They're called before the, the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, and they are warned and ordered by these authorities not to preach Jesus Christ anymore. And they leave that meeting and immediately go out and begin doing what they had been doing before, preaching Jesus publicly. So they get called back into the Sanhedrin. In chapter 5, verse 27, we read, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet here you are. You, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so they had them beaten, and they warned them and charged them again not to preach, and of course they did not obey. They didn't even pretend to obey. Jesus Christ is Lord over all that he has made, and so Christians proclaim his lordship over all, and we do not let the state tell us we're not allowed to do that. We proclaim it to the state. All authority in heaven and earth is his, and so in light of that, in light of that being the reality, in light of, of him being the one true ruling and reigning king over all things, Christians must never disobey a command of God in obedience to the state. That would be treason against the one true king. We must never do that. And we've had the opportunity to see this play out in the last few years in various places. James Coates, a pastor that we, we prayed for on, on several occasions here in Canada, ended up spending over a month in jail for, for having his church meet on a Sunday morning. Secondly, we must resist the state if the state asks us to go against our Christian conscience. Now, 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 the Christian conscience is not our own quirky little pet peeves. You don't get to just take any of your own weirdness and quirks and you're a generally grump, grumpy person and you call that your Christian conscience. Not every issue that matters is, rises to the level of Christian conscience where I must resist no, Christian conscience is informed by the Word of God and submitted to the Holy Spirit. And when the state encroaches on that, they're doing something they have no right to do. They're doing something they have no authority to do. And the state doesn't have the authority to, 
to hinder the work of God's other institutions, of the family, the work of the church. And when it tries to do so, we must resist it. It has stepped outside the bounds of its authority. And we don't submit to that. Martin Niemöller was a German pastor during the time of the Holocaust, and he spoke out against the Nazis. He was thrown in prison for it. And another pastor visited him, and he said, if you just stop, if you just stop speaking out against them, if you just submit yourself, they will release you from prison. And he's, he's trying to convince Niemöller, look, you don't have to be here. You don't have to be in this terrible situation. Just submit. Just be quiet. And he asked Niemöller, so why are you still in jail? You don't have to be. And Niemöller said, no, the question is, why aren't you in jail? We're commanded by God to not submit in these cases. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if a government breaks the law and becomes tyrannical, then the people have the right to change the government. We do not submit when the government oversteps its bounds and assumes authority over things God has not given it authority over. The, the, the state is not separate from God. The state is under God because all things are under God. And the world will tell us that's terrible and they will call it Christian nationalism and it is just the reality that the Christian understands that the world does not. All things are under the authority of God. All rulers will answer to him And we know that. We understand that, and the world doesn't. So we are the ones. We're the ones who have that message to proclaim. We're the ones who have that truth of ultimate reality to proclaim. And so we call them now, in keeping with reality, to submit themselves to him and his authority. That is our role. We are called then, as Christians, to a disposition of profound obedience to the state. But God owns us, and our submission to him must be unrivaled. We are called to submit to the state, but our submission to God is unrivaled. And so when obedience to the state would contradict our obedience to God, we must resist the state. We must defy the state, and we must obey God. And Paul gives us the basic role of government here. Look at verse 3 as he goes on. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good. You'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The function of government is beautifully described in this passage where Paul uses this phrase two times, servant of God. Diakonus where we get the word deacon. The government is a deacon of God. He's more emphatic even in verse 6. He says, a minister of God. It's a priestly service that the government does. And so the specific purpose of the government is to, to serve. Verse 4 says, specifically, for your good. That's why it's there. That's why the government exists. God has designed things to work this way. This is how God made humanity to function and to thrive. And so what that means is any government is better than no government. E even the worst governments are better than no government. And you might be thinking, that's not true. Just take away all authority in Chicago. 
which has a thoroughly corrupt government and always has, just take away all authority there for three days and see what happens. Like all of the Midwest will burn because of what happens in Chicago in three days' time. The, the Romans to whom Paul's writing this, that government was corrupt. That government was wicked. It was decidedly unchristian, anti-Christian. And yet they still provided the people who lived under their rule with stability and roads and clean water and a certain standard of living, flawed though it was with law and order. Paul says in verse 4, the second half of verse 4, the government is a, a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's what human authorities are. Servants of God who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The state is given the responsibility that the individual can never have. We, we saw this last week in Romans chapter 12 where Paul says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul told us as we saw last week, you may have been genuinely wronged, you may genuinely have been victimized, but you are not the judge. You are not the avenger. You have not been given that authority by God. But Paul says now, there is some, something that has been given that authority. Here the state is made the avenger. The, the one that God uses to carry out his vengeance on the earth. God uses even unrighteous rule to execute his righteousness on those who do wrong, Paul says. Really, the state just functions here to show us something bigger. The, the temporal judgment and wrath carried out on the wrongdoer anticipates God's ultimate and final wrath against sin. And so, the, in the state's judgment, in, in per, justice, imperfect though it may be, we see something of God's justice. And we see something of our need for mercy. That's how God has designed this to work. So Paul says the state doesn't bear the sword in vain. It does it for good. It does it for our, our earthly good. If it did not exist, it would be almost impossible for us all to exist. What, what would it be like? What would existence be like? And it bears the sword for our eternal good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which we all know so well, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. And then Paul goes on for... Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become formed to the likeness of his son. Those whom he predestined, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so earthly authority exists to sanctify us, to make us Christ-like, to conform us to the likeness of his son, ultimately to end in our glorification. And so all earthly authority, even the worst, is fulfilling God's purposes which can never be defeated. That's an incredible piece of truth to hang on to. He says in verse 3, if you do good, you have nothing to fear. Well, of course we know that governments have often been guilty of doing terrible things to the innocent. It's not that they always do things right. This Roman government Paul's writing to is about to launch into full-scale, fiery persecution of Christians who do good and should have nothing to fear from the government. This is a general truism Paul is giving us here. 
If you're driving down State Road 5 and the cruise control in your vehicle is set at 55 miles per hour and you drive past a police officer, you are not terrified. Oh no, what's to become of me? If you're going 75, you might break a little sweat. If I go to the shopping mall with with my family and I walk past a police officer, I don't, I don't break into a sweat and lean over like, be cool, guys. Eyes on the ground and walk straight forward. No, I've got nothing to fear in that situation. It's a, it's a truism. So in verses 1 and 2, he gives us the divine right of the state. In verses 3 and 4, he says the government is our servant. More than that, it is God's servant and is a tool in God's hand that God uses, that God has ordained and uses. Verses 5 through 7, he gives to us the kind of obedience we ought to have. Verse 5 says, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, we, we as Christians don't just obey the government because we're afraid of what's going to happen to us. Paul says we do it for the sake of conscience. He's, he's bringing us back to something that he's, He's had to say to us throughout the book of Romans and certainly in chapter 12, in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done for us, who we are, our need of salvation, his grace shed abroad upon us in Christ, because we belong to him, we ought to live like and think like Christians. We ought to change the way we think. We ought to change the way we live, that we ought to think in a way that glorifies God. We need to see the big picture. Christians ought to remember, we ought to hear these words and say, this authority has been placed there by God for, for God's purposes, which means it is ultimately for my good, because God has promised me that all things are. And in light of this truth, which the rest of the world doesn't see, he says, in light of that, be obedient to the government. It's gospel-motivated. It's the glory of God motivated that Christians ought to be the best citizens. How does it work out practically? It tells us more in verse 6. Because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Roman taxes were exorbitant. Their government was not always consistent. When Paul wrote these words, Nero was the Caesar. Tacitus again writes of Nero's persecution of the Christians. Christians weren't just executed, they were made into sport, Tacitus says. They'd have animal hides tied to them, and then wild animals released to attack and maul and kill them as public sport in the arena. Famously, Nero nailed Christians to crosses and set them on fire to use as nighttime lamps for events that he hosted in his own gardens. Tacitus tells us that. And we may look at our government and say, there is exceeding wickedness here. But we haven't gotten to this point just yet. 
This is the government. It's this Roman government. Paul writes to the church in Rome and says to them, pay your taxes, respect them, honor them. God has placed them there. How can that possibly be? If I wasn't preaching from this passage this morning and had just gotten up and given a talk, a lecture that didn't come from Romans 13 and told you that you needed to look at the worst of our politicians, whoever that is in your mind, and said, respect them, honor them, you'd have had all kinds of names to call me. You'd have been thinking about whether this is a church you can still go to. Paul says this to the Romans. Under Roman rule, we may deplore the actions and policies of some or many who are in office, and we should. We may be offended by some of the scandal of their personal lives, their politics, their policies, their activism might be genuinely evil, and often it is. Often we're seeing the people who are supposed to be conducting themselves with dignity acting like complete clowns in the public sphere, worthy of mockery and division and derision, truly. You know what Paul tells us here is we're, none of that permits us to disrespect the office. Oh, we call them to more, certainly. In our descent, in our exposing of evil, in our calls for repentance, we must act, we must speak, we must tweet and Facebook and whatever else it is that we do as Christian men and women in a way that honors the Lord, in a way that honors the systems He has set in place flawed though they may be. Well, is that even possible? How could, we, how could we do that? That's an impossible thing to ask of us. It might not even be a good thing to ask of us. Well, the answer is it's absolutely possible. And generations of Christians before you have done it in much more difficult situations than the one we're in. Look at the apostles Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent out by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For it's the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Who's the emperor? Nero, still. Isn't that amazing? Be subject to everyone. Be subject to the emperor as supreme. This pompous fool who proclaims himself a God worthy of worship, who's bloodthirsty in his savagery towards God's people, this is how... The apostles spoke of him. It's how Paul spoke of him. It's how Peter spoke of him. It should be challenging to us. We can't ignore that. Just because we hear some sound bites from, from talking heads on Fox News or, or, or on Twitter or wherever else, and we hear them tell us that, no, we should, 
we shouldn't respect or honor any, any of these people if we think they're guilty of evil. The next generation following the apostles, Justin Martyr, lived from 100 to 165 A.D., writes this, Everywhere we, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to those appointed to you by the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we've been taught by Jesus. In other words, we pay our taxes like the ones that, okay, these make sense, and also the ones that don't make sense and they're exorbitant and they're over the top and it's theft. We do all of it. As taught by Jesus, we worship only God, but in other things we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you may be found to possess sound judgment. You could just, just use some of this in, in your communication with, with legislators. This tone. And then the next generation, Tertullian, 160 to 220 A.D. We offer prayer for the safety of our princes to the eternal, the true, the living God whose favor beyond all others they must themselves desire without ceasing for all our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, for security to the empire, for protection for the imperial house, for brave armies, for faithful senate, for virtuous people. All of these done in the face of overwhelming persecution. Persecution we have not endured. Our submission to the state flows directly from our submission to God. You can hear that in the words of these faithful men tracing back to the apostles. There's no affirmation of wickedness that's being done. In fact, there's calls for the unrighteousness to cease. But all of this done in submission to God. Our, our trust is not in earthly authorities. It is certainly not in politicians. All of our trust is in God. And because of that, we subject ourselves to human authorities. Earthly authority, good or bad, should make us think on the gospel. It is just a shadow of God's supreme rule over the universe. And we have rebelled against that supreme king. The king whose image we bear. We have committed cosmic treason against. And so when we see the imperfect state execute imperfect judgment, it should remind us that God's righteous judgment is coming. His perfect judgment. And our only hope is not in doing good. Our treason is too great to redeem ourselves. Our only hope is putting all of our confidence, all of our faith, all of our hope in the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the state's care and provision for its people, it's just a shadow of God's perfect care and provision for his people. Our trust in God should make us good citizens. It should make us the best citizens, but it should never lead us to forget that we are citizens of another kingdom, first and foremost. The overarching reality of our lives. We are citizens of another kingdom and we serve another king. In fact, the most basic proclamation of the New Testament is a political one. Instead of saying Caesar is Lord, which was the proclamation of the Roman Empire, Christians proclaim Jesus is Lord. 
Because Jesus is Lord and he is the one who has placed Caesar in place, then yes, we will submit. But no, you're not Lord. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 5 says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile in Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to look at the world around us and go, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. This government is thoroughly corrupt. Let it burn. Let it sink. Look at this Babylon that we're living in. We might as well fold our hands and cloister ourselves together and let the rest burn. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever told anything like that. What does he say? He says, you exiles, you exiles living in wicked Babylon, seek the welfare of the city. Build houses, live in them, eat their produce. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, and its welfare is your welfare. Friends, we are exiles. Our true home is another kingdom with another king. That's our true identity, but we serve this city best by first remembering who our king is, of which kingdom we've been made citizens, where our true eternal home is. And in that, in submission and honor to him, we will be good citizens as exiles in this kingdom. Let me just close with the words of Charles Spurgeon, because he always says everything better than I do. Charles Spurgeon said, let us remember that we are simply passing through this earth and should bless it in our transit. But never yoke ourselves to its affairs. It is passing away, and we will soon be traveling home. It's our lives as Christians. We seek the welfare of the city to which God has called us. We submit to the authorities that God has placed, but we never forget who our king is. To our ultimate allegiance is due. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we confess this, this topic is difficult, and there are many voices calling us in many different directions. We want to be faithful to you. You are king. You are God. You are master. Would you, by your spirit, give us great wisdom in these dark days? Lord, we look to our faithful brothers and sisters and their faithful testimony in the midst of, of wicked generations, and we pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful in the midst of this wicked generation. We would be shining lights against the darkness in this world, that we would be beacons of hope, that we would be faithful ambassadors of our King and His kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would give us humility in keeping with the gospel, in keeping with this great salvation. Give us boldness to stand for truth and righteousness, and yes, even to stand against the wicked state, if you would have us do that. pray, Lord, that you would do all of these things for your namesake and for your glory, for the eternal joy of all your people. In Jesus' name, amen.